Okay, turning your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 7. Today we're looking at a bit more of a positive subject compared to last week, which was uh, essentially the apocalypse or Armageddon. Today we're looking at the millennium, the millennial kingdom of our Lord, and we're looking at Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Just to start us off, and it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and we'll commit this time to him. Father, we thank you once again for your word and we thank you for the privilege it is to be able to read uh, its precepts and laws uh, and teachings. We pray for your guidance now. We pray for your grace. We pray for the leading of your spirit within our hearts and our minds to be able to understand your word that the devil might not snatch away those things which we have learned today but that we might be able to put them into practice in our lives, to learn by them and grow through them. And we pray, Lord, that you be glorified in our midst. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For those of you who, um, who uh, follow pop culture, um, there is a, quite a popular uh, idea in pop culture in modern day movies about apocalypses. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed, but... Common themes in modern day movies and stories and books and things like that are all also seem to be centered around some sort of a dystopian future about some sort of way the world manages to get destroyed and then it's left in ruins. So, if you want to um, look at particular ways of the world being destroyed, um, an alien invasion is always a good one. Um, that's a pretty popular theme, so if you're into the Avengers and that sort of stuff over there, you know, it's always about aliens coming in and trying to destroy the world and, and then, you know, leaving the place in a complete mess. Uh, and asteroids always a good way to go. Um, an asteroid crashes into the Earth, destroys most of the Earth, and, and whatever's left is then once again a dystopian future. Zombie apocalypses are actually rank pretty highly up there as well, with some sort of a mad virus, you know, rampaging the world and people beginning to, to eat each other. And then viruses, some sort of a pandemic destroying the world as well. Or maybe uh, what's become more and more popular in our day is uh, global warming. Some sort, of a, some sort of a climatic disaster that happens and, you know, and it's the end of the world again. And, or maybe some war or nuclear holocaust that happens and then you have sort of a Mad Max sort of a, a, a thing happening where the person... You know, lives in a, in a world that's radioactive and destroyed or whatever. So it's been around for a, a long time. So the world's, the world's uh, stories or pop culture tend a lot to be around some sort of a cataclysmic time in the future. What's interesting about most of these cataclysmic sort of endings or, or stories is that almost none of them actually involve um, God's judgment on man. Yeah, they always involve something else happening to the world, man doing it to himself or some sort of an alien being or someone else, but almost never God's judgment on the world, which is where they got the idea from in the first place. Mm -hmm. 
They just managed to turn it into something else. What's less popular is the idea of a, of a utopian uh, world. But it has been popular throughout the ages in terms of uh, working towards the world, working towards some sort of a utopian or perfect sort of society. Um, there was a fellow, if you, if you know him, his name was Hitler. Um, he had this, this idea that he could create a millennial kingdom. Okay? He got the idea probably from the Bible and he wanted to do that with his Third Reich. And he thought to himself, if he could just do what he had to do, okay, um, he could create a perfect world and, and, and bring in a thousand-year rule of whatever, he, whatever his ideal world was, which is probably not ideal at all. So it's still popular in terms of a utopian sort of ideal that man is trying to work towards and you know if you're a technologist or someone who believes in you know man's ability to be able to create create technology a lot of these people um, who are into technology have this idea that technology is going to be able to create a utopian society that's they've ripped that off as well by the way that's what the bible calls the millennium so so the bible's uh, um, uh, prophecy about the future is that there will be a climatic sort of ending to the current world situation. Uh, it's going to involve plagues, it's probably going to involve a whole lot of other cataclysmic events, including war. And um, But after that, there's going to come a time of a th literal thousand year reign. And the Bible tells us, if you go back to Daniel chapter 2 with me, as we've read in Daniel chapter 7, by the way, that, that, that the Son of Man who comes in the clouds, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to be given this dominion and power and that all nations and languages are going to serve him. And that, that kingdom will never, will never finish. Even though the thousand years seems to have a beginning and an ending, that kingdom will never finish. It will just, that is simply like a, almost like a transition sort of period. But Daniel 2.44 says, and in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So we've looked at in Daniel this uh, notion of the rule of the Gentiles, you know, beginning with Babylon, then going towards the Medo-Persians, and then to the Greeks, and then to the Roman Empire. And then you have at the end this final empire that, that encompasses the world and with the reign of the Antichrist and the, the world goes completely down off a cliff, essentially. And God judges the world and then the Lord comes back. He judges those nations. He judges the Antichrist. And we have the Lord then taking away finally the dominion of the devil over the world. And he takes his rightful place as the king. Of this world, so but what does a dominion, what does a millennium actually look like? Have you ever wondered that? You know, it's really hard to imagine sometimes a world that doesn't have death, that doesn't have hatred, that doesn't have all the problems that we see around it. But that's the picture that the Bible essentially gives us about what this thousand years is going to look like. So imagine a world where there's no injustice, where there are crimes, 
but they're solved and that justice is always done. Can you imagine that? Because who has, who has ultimate confidence in the judicial and legal system and policing system of this world? No one does. We know that plenty of crimes go unsolved. We know that plenty of, of criminals get away scot-free because they're able to manoeuvre around the legal system. But imagine a world where that doesn't happen anymore. Imagine a world where all crimes are solved and brought to justice, where people no longer have a cynical view about the justice system, nor have a cynical view about the government. Okay, So there's a lot of cynicism about government, especially in the West, where people don't trust their, their governments at all. and, and that They may be honest, they may not be honest, but we, we almost tend to um, uh, automatically think that there's something fishy going on, that there's injustice going on, that there's corruption going on, there's people trying to take more power than what they're supposed to have, and that's, that's common in every, every nation in this world, because there is corruption, there, there is overreach, there is, there are decisions that are made that, don't, that aren't right. Imagine a world where people don't generally take advantage of one another, because that's pretty common nowadays, isn't it? Where people take advantage of each other, but instead, where love and respect actually are the norm. Imagine a world where there's no war. And imagine a world where there's no need to spend billions upon billions and billions of dollars on defences. Where people aren't trying to build faster and faster bombs to blow us up. Where people aren't building submarines, yeah, don't have to spend, how much are we spending? $90 billion on submarines? We'll get them by 2040, apparently. I'm sure it's going to be fast enough, to be honest with you. Um, but imagine where there's no threat from other countries, where there's no threat, where you don't have to spend that much money actually building arms, keeping an army going, building tanks and bombs and planes and submarines and warships and strategies <coughs> and everything. Can you imagine where you don't have to spend any of that money? What you do with it. What you could do with it. Well, that's the picture we get of the millennium. There's no need for defences. Imagine a world where the environment is pristine. Where the water's clear, the animals are plentiful and not in danger of extinction. Imagine that plant life is, is truly abundant. Where farmers plant crops and they don't <coughs> die. That it is, there's plenty of water. There's, there's plenty of uh, production in that area where they plant and they grow the crop. They don't have to, you know, they don't have to wait, they have to plant three crops in the hope of getting one good crop. Imagine where there is then no hunger in the world. No hunger. Where we don't have to watch things on TV about little children starving in Ethiopia and Sudan and all those places because of injustices that are happening over there or because there's some sort of a drought that's going on. Imagine a world where there is no hunger. Imagine a world where you can, where you can actually sit next to a lion. Where you can sit next to a wild animal. Where if, you're, if you've gone uh, for a walk in the bush somewhere and you sit down and you're having your lunch there and a snake goes by you, well, you don't jump up. Where that snake's not a problem to you. And no one's scared of spiders. <laughs> Where men, where husbands, don't have to kill spiders every day. <laughs> Imagine a world where there's no disease. 
where there are no pandemics, where there are where, where people don't die of cancer and there are people filling hospitals with all types of different problems where you don't get old and worn out. Where arthritis is not the norm, where people don't die of heart attacks all the time, where people don't have mental illnesses all the time. And, and there's all that type of things where, where the Bible says that's the picture that we get for this coming time. And imagine a ruler who is perfect, a ruler who wants the very best for his people, who's completely benevolent, who's loving, who's wise, and he has the power to be able to look after all of their needs. That's the world the Bible describes as the millennium. So after the destruction of the tribulation period, most of the world's been destroyed. It actually tells us, I mean, we, we have this, um, this, this picture where a third of the world, so a third of the world's water, trees are burnt up, grass is burnt up, and then we have this picture, and I believe it's speaking of the Mediterranean Sea, where every animal in the sea actually died, in that sea dies. And I, su I suspect that most of the world's oceans have died as well. Where the waters are turned bitter, where people can't live. But imagine that being turned around to the exact opposite then. And this kingdom spans every nation and language in the world. So there's not going to be only one language in the world. In fact, it looks as if there's going to be, all the cultures are still going to be there. All the various nations are still going to be there. So notice Daniel chapter 7 verse 14. It says, And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom, look at what it says, that all people, nations and languages should serve him. So you'll notice that it doesn't eradicate the nations. It doesn't eradicate the various languages or people groups in the world. So, probably likely that, that Australia is still going to be floating around. Still going to be here. Minus probably submarines. <laughs> this also includes the House of Jacob. It also includes Israel as a people and what's interesting about the, the prophecies about, about Israel is that it actually says that not only will they be happy living within their land again, within Israel, safe and at peace, it says they're going to have King David as their leader as well. So turn, turn with me to Luke chapter 1 for a moment. Luke chapter 1, and we'll see the ultimate person who's over uh, Israel. Luke chapter 1, verse 31, it says, And behold, thou shalt conceive... Now, this is, this is the angel Gabriel making this prophecy here. Luke 1, verse 31, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, so he's speaking to Mary, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give he, unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So, Jesus shall rule. And so the, the ultimate ruler in the world is Jesus Christ, the man. Okay, so the Bible says, if you ever wondered, 
Is Jesus a man in heaven now? The answer to that is... Yes. Yes. There is one mediator between God and man. The man. Jesus Christ. Okay? Mm -hmm. So Jesus has not shed his, his humanity. He is still a man. Okay? In, in, uh, in heaven. Right now. He is both God and man. But he will be the ultimate ruler over the house of Jacob. Now, the house of Jacob is not the church. Don't let anyone ever tell you that Jacob is the church. If they're telling you that, they're telling you a fib because we are not Jacob. Unless you are descended from Abraham, which I am not. Italians generally aren't. Um, <laughs> you are not the house of Jacob. There may be people from the house of Jacob, but that's not me. Okay, So... The Lord will reign, rule over the house of Jacob, the Jews. And it says that not only will the Lord reign over the entire world, including his own people, it says that the world will also be governed by the saints of God. And they shall rule with Christ. And the term saints here is are those who have been set aside for the Lord. The term saint is the ones who have been set aside, okay? The ones who have been who are special to the Lord. And that includes what we know as the church. Okay? So we are in the church now. Yes, you are in the church. You're not in the house of Jacob, you're in the church, and you are what's called the bride of Christ. But it says that somehow we will be ruling and there will, the saints of God will be ruling during that time. So look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 27 for a moment. Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. So, even, so we have an ultimate ruler who is Christ. Then it says in verse 27 of chapter 7, And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So the saints are given rule in this millennial kingdom. Okay? But before the world comes under the, the leadership of Christ, what corrupts, and we looked at this last week, has to be removed. Uh, it includes the Antichrist and the false prophet who are both thrown into the lake of fire. It includes the judgment of the nations, which we looked at last week as well. It separates the sheep from the goats, remember? Mm -hmm. And so the goats are all sent to hell and the sheep are allowed to live in the, in the millennium. So everyone going into the millennium is actually a believer. Okay? Is a believer. <coughs> same way, the same way that you and I believe today they will enter into the millennial kingdom. And the devil, the Bible says, for a thousand years is cast into a bottomless pit in chains. So he's chained up for the first time in his existence. He's chained for 1,000 years. And it tells us that Israel will finally return to the Lord. They'll recognize Jesus as the Savior and the Lord. And they will live in their own land governed by him. And even, as I mentioned, King David and this will distinguish the millennium from every other age that has existed so far. And that is that the living will dwell with the resurrected. Ever thought about that? The living will dwell on this earth with people that are resurrected. And the ones that are resurrected right, are going to go into the, into the millennium 
and they can't have children. So if you and I are going to be raptured and we return with Christ, the Bible tells us and Jesus tells us that, and that's in uh, Matthew 22.30, is that those who have been resurrected or raptured are like the angels of heaven. They don't have children anymore. They don't get married anymore. Remember that question they asked him about the woman who's married seven times and which husband is her husband in heaven? And Jesus goes, well, you're being silly, really. There is no marriage in heaven. They're like the angels of heaven once they're resurrected. So for the ones who have been raptured or resurrected, which will include those ones who are martyred during the tribulation period, the Bible says that they go into the millennium okay, with new bodies and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and alive again. okay. But there will be a group of people that go into the millennium who haven't died, who are still alive, and they will... Be able to have children. We won't. Okay? So does that make sense? So if you've survived the tribulation period and you're a believer, you go into the millennium still with the ability to have families and children and that's how the the population regrows again. We, on the other hand, don't. We, on the other hand, are devoted to the Lord. We're like the angels of heaven. We don't have families and we don't uh, get married. Okay? We don't have to kill spiders as well. You don't have to worry about all that sort of stuff. We'll take the garbage out anymore. Turn with me to Hosea chapter 3. Because it tells us here that Israel will return to the Lord and they will once again um, believe and follow and obey God. So Hosea chapter 3 verse 4 says, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, which they have already done, and without a prince, and without sacrifice, which they have already done, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So in the latter days, we, we find the, the, the Jews returning to their homeland and they will seek the Lord. And that's going to happen during the tribulation period. They're going to find him during that time when they realise the Antichrist is not the Christ. But even though he's presented himself as one, they will realise that he is not. And there will be an awakening. There will be a, um, a revival for them. And Ezekiel explains a similar thing. As, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. And we're looking at verse 25 to 27. Ezekiel 37, 25 says, And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them, 
and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So literally, God's going to have his temple, and he's going to rule from that city, from the midst of, of his people. They will once again be... Well, he's not once again, but they shall be as God describes the head and not the tail anymore. They won't be displaced by every other nation on the world. They won't be at risk of being deported and, and cast into all and scattered throughout all the earth. They will be serving God and he will have his temple in their midst and he will literally be living among them. So the promise made by the Lord concerns the future of Israel as a nation and as a people. And the question of whether God has abandoned his people will be conclusively answered. Because look at the next verse. Ezekiel 37 verse 28. And the heathen shall know that I the Lord do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. There are people who say that they no longer exist because they rejected Christ the first time, that God has abandoned them forever, they no longer exist as a people, that they deserve to be recognised as a people, and that all the promises that God has made to them has been given now to the church. I mean, I'd love to have all the promises, but that's not the case. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that he still recognises them as a people. They're still recognized as the Jews. And you'll find that in the New Testament, throughout the entire New Testament, that they're still recognized as a distinct people who God says will turn to him in the end. So all the promises that God has made in the Old Testament will be fulfilled literally in the future. And God says, And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel. And he will. In the millennium, Jerusalem will be exalted as a city. And raised even topographically. It will be raised literally above um, its current position and surrounding land. Israel, Jerusalem will be greatly enlarged and will include all the old landmarks. But look at Zechariah with me for a moment. Turn me to Zechariah chapter 14 verse 10. Because not only would Jerusalem be the capital of the world... This is where the Lord will be ruling from. This is where the central government will be. This is what the devil was trying to accomplish, right? The devil was trying to take Jerusalem for himself so he can actually rule the world from that place and have a capital of the entire world. And he failed in that particular um, exercise. But the Bible says that when Christ returns, he will literally rule from that place. But something happens to Israel. Something happens to Jerusalem, particularly and you'll notice it says in Zechariah 14.10, it says, And all the land, verse 10, All the land shall be turned as a plain. So it's going to be completely flat. From Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. And it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place. From Benjamin's gate, under the place of the first gate under the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananiel, under the king's wine press. Now, just let me give you an example of this. Um, how far is it here to the city, roughly? 10 k's, probably. About 20 k's? No. 19. 10 k's? All right, so about 10 k's from here to the city. So, notice how it says, 
that the land shall be turned to a plain, right? So there's not, no longer going to be this sort of business going on over there. But Jerusalem will be a completely flat area. And it says from Geba, which is in the northwest, to Rimmon, which is in the south. The south is 56 kilometers south of Jerusalem. That gives you an idea of how big this plain that is going to be lifted up higher than all the surrounding areas. And it's going to be 56 kilometers to the south. And Geba is 10 kilometers to the north. That's how big the city will be. That's a decent sized city. Okay. So 56 kilometers, so at least 66 kilometers plus central Jerusalem. And I'm not sure how big that's going to be. It's going to be a few at least. So let's say around 70, I'd say, kilometers at least from one end to the other. And it says it will be raised as a flat land, which means God's going to actually change the topography of that area. Isaiah says the same thing. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 2 says, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. So all the nations are going to come to that place. Why are they coming to that place? That's the central government of the entire world. That's why the nations are going to be sending delegates constantly to that place. It's going to be like Canberra is to Melbourne, what Jerusalem will be to the entire world. So we see here that the nations are still going to exist because they come and send delegates to that place. And we're not sure if they'll be exactly the same way that they are today or exist today. I'm not sure if there's going to be still around 200 nations or whether the, whether the law is going to decide to change that. But the idea of various nationalities and people existing with various languages and cultures is clearly taught in Scripture, that they're going to continue. So what we have today that might distinguish us or this, this country as Australians might still, for the most part, be around. So Vegemite might make it. Amen. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine it like during the millennium, Aussie rules are still going to be played? <laughs> and in a perfect world, Carlton will be winning every time, right? <laughs> the tail will be the head this time, right? And cricket will still be around. So, the various parts of the world are still going to have their cultures. They're still, they're still, I'm assuming there still will be various you know, cuisines from various parts of the world. They're going to be recognisable. And people will have their own culture, which is I find really interesting. Okay? There isn't, the world's not going to be locked into, into some sort of everyone's have to have the same culture. No, I don't think it's going to be the case. Because the Lord simply says that the languages, nations and people are all going to, and are still going to be there. And they're all going to simply uh, go to Jerusalem and converse with Jerusalem about the rule of their nation. But have a look at Zechariah chapter 8 with me for a moment. Because one thing in common that all the nations of the world will have is that they will recognise the rule of Christ from Israel. Okay? They will recognise that rule and that he reigns. Zechariah 8.20 
says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, It shall yet come to pass that, that there shall come people and the inhabitants of many cities. And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord, and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. That's never happened before. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And look at the difference here. Not only will they'll be they will um, recognise that the Lord of hosts, that Jesus is ruling from Jerusalem, but they'll recognise the Jews as being something special to him. And they'll say, Let's, we're going to get with you. Huh? We're going to get with you because we know that you're close to him. You're living with him there. Tell us about him. What's he like? So Jerusalem will be, the physical Jerusalem, will be restored in glory with the Lord himself in the midst of her. And so references in the Bible to a restored Jerusalem that exists, uh, that exists today and that has been trodden down over the thousands of years by various Gentile nations is different, though, to the heavenly Jerusalem. So make sure you don't mix up those two things. There is a heavenly Jerusalem that... Christ is building and making, which will come down after the thousand years. That's the heavenly Jerusalem. That's never been trodden down. That's never been uh, uh, interfered with. That will come down after the thousand years. But this is the Jerusalem that exists there right now. And it will be exalted. It will be made the capital of the entire world. And it will exist for 1,000 years as such. Jerusalem will be both the political and religious capital of the entire world. Righteousness and justice will characterise the kingdom because all those who enter the millennium are either resurrected saints or people who have been born again. Okay? They're only going to go into the millennium if you're a believer. During the millennium, there will exist righteousness in the world such as never has been seen. A glorious temple will stand in Jerusalem and all the nations will go to that to worship there. But there will be judgments as well. God will judge the world. And if they don't obey, the Bible says he rules with a rod of iron. Turn to Zechariah chapter 14 with me. Zechariah chapter 14. Because there is one particular interesting uh, passage that speaks about the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says that the nations who came against Israel are then told they have to come year by year, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in Israel. Now look what it says here. And if they refuse, it says they're going to be judged. Zechariah 14, 16 says, And it shall come to pass, and notice here it says, that every nation that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, so we know there are going to be some that wanted to attack Jerusalem and destroy her, shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall, it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, 
the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. So he's going to judge them by stopping, turning off the rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain. There shall be the there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. So the plague here is speaking about is actually he turns off the rain. He actually causes a drought on them. And he's speaking about Egypt as an example here. So he says if Egypt doesn't chooses and they don't send a delegate to go and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And mind you, the Feast of Tabernacles is a feast that Israel celebrates every year, which lasts about seven days, which celebrates God's salvation, or their salvation from Egypt, remember? And the reason they, 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 they make little booths for themselves, this is also called the, the, uh, the, the Feast of Booths, they make little tents for themselves, okay? And they stay in those tents for seven days, essentially. And the reason they do that is to remember that for 40 years they were in a wilderness going from place to place with tents and living in tents. God had saved them, but they were foolish enough to actually um, not go into the promised land. They were too afraid. So they lived in tents for all that time. But that's celebrating still God's salvation of them. For some reason, the nations that come against Israel, God's going to say, you have to come and celebrate that as well. And it says, if you don't come and celebrate, if you don't send delegates to celebrate this particular thing, and it may actually mean something new during this time as well. It may actually bring the idea that Israel has been in the wilderness now for the last 2,000 years plus. That Israel has existed under the dominion of the Gentile nations for a long, long time. Remember? Going all the way back to Babylon to when they were actually deported from their own own, own, own uh, country. And from then till now, well, it's only the first time in 1948 when they first got a chance to get back to their own, own country and be under their own rule, they've been under the Gentile nations. So maybe the Feast of Tabernacles really is a remembrance also of how they've been in the wilderness for that long because of the disobedience to the Lord, but also that God saved them even right at the end. So it looks as if there's still going to be judgment on the world and there will still be um, disobedience, which means people are still going to have a fallen nature. But think of this for a moment. If, if the tribulation was to happen tomorrow and we would go into the tribulation, I don't believe that that's the case, but let's say we, we did, Right? Would you and I be perfect? No, we wouldn't be. And so there's no... The same way we are saved, the same, the same uh, challenges we have in our own lives and, and the, the struggles we have with our, um, with our flesh, they still actually will have during that time. The difference will be that the devil's going to be bound up. The, the demons are going to be uh, thrown into hell. They're going to be locked up as well. There's going, everyone's going to be uh, essentially believers. The Lord's going to be ruling from Jerusalem. So God's going to be on the earth. There's going to be righteousness and a proper government all over the, all over the place. And we're going to look now that God's going to actually lift the curse that he put on the world. So there's not going to be all the stuff that we have to experience now. So that's going to change people's lives dramatically during that time. But they're still going to have to deal with their flesh. Okay, It's still going to be there. And so 
the same challenges we have, although we have a, we seem to have a lot more challenges our way um, in terms of things we have to um, fight against. Um, they won't have, but there's still the opportunity to sin. And there will still be, by the looks of it, even sacrificial offerings are going to be resumed. And these sacrificial offerings are going to be a bit like the see the sacrificial offerings in the Old Testament? They were a picture of what was to come in Christ. Those sacrificial offerings in, in, the, in the future, during the millennium, are going to be a reminder of what he did. And also a celebration of what he did. So that's going to be um, uh, happening as well in Jerusalem too. Um, there's going to be certain feasts as well. But the earth will be returned to almost an Eden-like condition. During the tribulation, as I've said, much of the world is going to be destroyed. But God's going to make it so the world's climate, its, its plants, its animal life are going to change dramatically. And so much of the world will have been decimated. But during the millennium, we're told the earth will be returned to almost a pristine condition. And God's going to restore it. And we're going to look at that now. So turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. As I've said, the, the farmers are going to be able to plant crops and they're just going to grow abundantly. The trees are going to grow, they're going to bear fruits, the animals are going to be plentiful and life is going to be very, very different. Ezekiel 34, verse 26. It says, And I will make them and the places round about my hill a blessing, and I will cause the shower to come down in his season. There shall be showers of blessings. We get the, um, the hymn from. And the tree of the field shall yield her fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. And they shall be safe in their land, and shall know that I am the Lord. When I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them out of the hand of those that served themselves of them. So the reference here is, is to his people who are going to be living in safety. But the idea is that the entire world shall, in, shall yield her increase and that the tree of the field shall actually be fruitful. So how does he do this? We'll turn with me to chapter 47 of Ezekiel. One way it describes that he has healed, he heals the world, is actually by streams of living water that literally come and flow from that high point in Jerusalem into the oceans. Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1. Now look at verse 1, and then we're going to jump to verse 7. Okay. Afterward he brought, he brought me again unto the door of the house, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under, from the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. So, so let's just stop there for a moment. So water is issuing from the house of the Lord, from the temple of God, okay? Look at verse 7. Now when I had returned, behold, at the bank of the river were there were very many trees on one side and the other. Then said he unto me, These waters issue out towards the east country, 
and go down into the desert and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the rivers shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed, and everything shall live, whither the river cometh. Isn't that an amazing thing when you think of it? So God's going to issue living waters from his throne, somehow from, under, from underneath, that are going to flow like a river all the way down to the sea from the, through the east, okay, so not, not the west, into the, straight into the Mediterranean, but to the east, and they come all the way down and then go into the river, and they, fer- they, they fertilize all the land. But when they hit the ocean, when they hit the sea, the sea is actually healed. I don't know what that water is, but it's going to be interesting to see how God's going to heal the, the land and the sea from him, from him, literally from himself. And so the world will be healed during this time and God's going to lift the curse and there's going to be a great time of prosperity for the entire world. And it seems to be a return to a more simple life. Who wants to slow down a little bit over here? Do you want to slow down? Yeah, I think most people actually want to slow down. Um, our life is very complicated. It's always fast moving. It's always competitive. It never seems to be any rest for the average person. And it's getting quicker with the more technology that comes out. But this time seems to be a return to a more simple life, a life of peace, a return to family, a return to the Lord, an enjoyment of the earth, and people are going to be just happy. The earth will be productive and fruitful. Turn to Amos chapter 9 with me. Amos chapter 9 verse 13. And this is how fruitful the world will become. You won't have to actually throw fertilizer on top of fertilizer on top of fertilizer just to get a crop. Okay? In Amos 9.13, this is God's promise of what will come. He says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the ploughman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land. And they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. So there's an incredible abundance here. And what it's actually saying is the plowman, the guy who's plowing the actual ground, overtakes the guy who's reaping because they can't keep up with the collection. It's growing so quickly and so and so um, uh, prolifically that they can barely keep up with gathering this stuff. And it's easier for them to plant, but it's harder for the guy to actually reap it. There's too much to keep up with. So the guy who's plowing just keeps on going. The guy who's, who's reaping is going gonna, gonna to have a hard time reaping. It's going to be so plentiful. But it says that, that <coughs> they're going to have, the mountains are going to drop sweet wine, 
everything is going to be different again. Israel will rebuild the towns that were destroyed and ruined and the world will be fruitful once again. Turn to Joel with me, chapter 2, verse 24. That he too records this future time that's going to be absolutely fruitful. Joel 2, verse 24. So I'm getting you to go through a lot of passages, but I'm just trying to help you to understand the basics of this thing. There were so many scripture verses I could have shared with you today. I could keep you here for a few hours. Um, Joel verse, chapter 2, verse 24. And it says, And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God uh, that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. So once again, he's speaking to his people, but he's reminding them that there's a future time coming when the floors, when the floors of their, of their, uh, of their places where they store their thing will be full. Everything will be full and everything will be overflowing during this time. So the world will be productive. It will bear fruit. There won't be need to fight over resources in the world. Okay? You know, there's a, there's, there are countries that are getting a bit angsty with each other about water supplies. And, and, you know, and, and one country complains against another country about supplies and, and divvying up what they need for their, uh, you know, for their needs. There won't be any of that. The world's going to be so um, uh, plentiful that no nation will, have, will be worried about another nation and what they have because they're going to have more than enough. And so because of that, the world's going to be also very peaceful. You'll notice in these particular passages, it speaks about a time of peace for his own people. It's going to be a time of peace for the entire world. There'll be no more need for war. Accordingly, as I've mentioned... The expenditures that countries have on their uh, defences are no longer going to be required. And I'm not sure if you understand how much countries spend on defences, but it's a huge, huge number. They've estimated that if, you, if, you, if the countries didn't have expenses for war and defences, there'd be no more poverty in the world, essentially. There'd be, no, there'd be no hunger, and we could probably spend a whole lot more fixing up diseases. Okay? But we live in a world where threats exist, where countries threaten each other and, uh, and people don't get along. But that will be a different time again. So turn to Micah chapter 4 with me. Micah chapter 4 verse 1. This will be a time of peace in the world. Micah chapter 4 verse 1 says, But in the last days it shall come to pass, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. We've read that already. And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares 
and their spears into pruning hooks. A nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none of them, none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. Look at the promise here. That the countries that were spending money on making arms and armaments are now turning that money to make what? Plowshares and pruning hooks, which means they're going to need equipment to cultivate. They're going to need equipment to, to sow crops and to harvest crops. And so I love that picture that he gives of every man shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree and none's going to stop them. It's just going to be a time of absolute peace. You can sit without worrying about what's coming. And on top of that, apart from the time of peace, there will be universal justice as well. So Isaiah 11.4 says, But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. So the Lord will judge righteously and he will have governors judging righteously all around the world. And on top of this, and this is the interesting part I think most people find interesting, is that God's going to remove the fear that animals have of humans and humans of animals. So a fundamental part of the Bible's message is that the original world that God created was good, right? Yeah. Um, and that animals weren't killing each other in the beginning. And there was no bloodshed. And there was no fear. I mean, animal, uh, Adam named all the animals that were brought to him. He didn't run away when the lion came. Do you know what I mean? He didn't, he didn't go screaming, you know, when, when a hippopotamus was in front of him. No, no, he actually was able to walk with them without any fear. And they had no fear of him, which is an amazing thing. Because you can't think of that now. I mean, if you're walking... I saw a video recently in India. There was a leopard in one of the villages and it was running rampant, running around, and they didn't know what to do. They're, they're banging whatever it is, drums, to try and scare it away. But the fear of that animal won't be there anymore. And people won't be afraid of animals anymore, which is really extraordinary. But the Bible tells us that all the evils of the world today both moral and physical, came into the world as a consequence of our sin. Things fell apart after we sinned. And all the carnivorous animals that we see today, so we see the, you know, the, the lion eating an antelope, um, didn't exist originally, according to the Bible. We are told that in the beginning, God made vegetation for all the animals to eat, including lions and tigers and bears and everything else like that. And even vegetation was given to man. Man wasn't eating animals in the beginning. So in Genesis 1.29, it says, And God said, Behold, this is speaking to man, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for me. Okay? So man was given all the fruit, the herbs, Plants to eat. All mankind and all the animals were herbivores, not carnivorous. So every animal that the Lord created, 
essentially was herbivore at the beginning. This included man. But after the fall and after the, uh, the curse of the, uh, uh, where God cursed the earth for, with thorns and thistles, something happened. And I suspect it was a genetic change that happened. I suspect that when they ate that fruit of that, of that uh, tree there, I suspect that it was something similar to something like a, uh, what we call a retrovirus. If you understand what a retrovirus it is. Uh, a retrovirus is one that actually um, goes into your DNA uh, in order to replicate itself. It actually changes your DNA in order to replicate itself. Okay, mm -hmm. And I suspect that that's what happened to man when he ate of that fruit. God warned him about it, it would kill him, and it eventually it did. But I think that changed the entire world as well. Mm -hmm. And God cursed the actual ground. So we have two things going on at the same time. But God didn't allow man to eat animals until when? Does anyone know? Until after the flood, exactly. Until after the flood. It was about a thousand years later, after the actual um, uh, creation. So turn to Genesis chapter 9, and we'll see for the first time that it was only after the flood that God actually told man that he could eat animals. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. So where God told Adam and Eve originally they, would have every, they could have every fruit and every, every herb of the field, they could, they, they could have all of that, look at, look at Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons. Okay, so they've just come off, they've come off the ark and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply. Of course, there was no one else on the earth, right? So he says, Be fruitful and multiply. Have children and you know, fill it up. And replenish the earth. And the fear of you, look at this, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, and upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. So God, for the first time, said to man, not only have you got all the herbs to eat, but you now can eat animals too. Everything that moves. And I suspect the reason that happened is the world had been underwater for a good year. So a lot of the vegetation that um, was in the world would probably have been wiped out. So when they've come off the ark, the world was a completely different place. Completely different. Many of the species that they were probably used to eating were now gone. You think that, you know, when you go to Coles and you've got a selection of fruits and vegetables there, that it's actually um, a lot and plentiful? There would have been who knows how many more species and varieties of fruits and vegetables available in those times. Enough and ones that would satisfy even lions and tigers. Okay. So something changed. And God said, well, now I'm going to allow you to eat animals because the world's changed completely. But the world had changed by nature dramatically. And so we see man eating meat. We see animals now fearing man, man fearing animals. But something's going to happen in the end. God's going to change all that back. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6.
the world will go back to a place where it was well before the flood. Isaiah 11 verse 6. It says there, And the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed. The young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox, like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the ass. And the weaning child shall put his hand in the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So here is your stone that smites the image of Nebuchadnezzar's statue at his feet, destroys everything and brings this back in. A place where... You can now have lunch with a lion without being the lunch. (laughs) This is a place where a little kid can play with a a snake without worrying about being bitten. So the entire world you fill with the knowledge of God. It will be a, a a place we can't even, we can't even probably imagine at the moment. So I can't imagine not being, animals not being afraid of us or us not being afraid of animals and living together in that particular way. But it will be a dramatically different place. And you'll notice the passage that Brother Praveen read this morning, that the life of people will be like the trees. Okay, So the lifespans of people will be like a tree that can live for a long, long time. But it doesn't necessarily mean that death will be eradicated completely but it means that it will be much less prevalent. So turn me to Isaiah chapter 29. We're almost finished here. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18. So people's lifespans will go back to what they were before the flood, where they were living hundreds and hundreds of years without sicknesses. And look at Isaiah 29, 18. It says, And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Now go to 30, chapter 35, verse 5 with me. So the deaf are able to hear. The eyes of the blind are going to be opened up. Isaiah 35, 5 says the same thing again. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as in heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. That's the difference that's going to exist during this thousand-year reign. And turn with me to Isaiah 65 now. Because longevity will characterise the lifespans of all people. So it says there, and I will rejoice, Isaiah 65, 19. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and join my people, and the voice of weeping shall shall no more uh, heard in her, 
shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, which means an infant is not going to die just after a few days, nor an old man that has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die in a hundred years old. So if a child does die prematurely, it's a hundred years. Okay? But the sinner being in a hundred shall old shall be a curse. In other words, they're going to be judged. They're going to be their their life is not going to be good. So there's still going to be sin in the world, but people's lifespans are going to be very, very long. And so the interesting thing here is that mankind is not completely changed. He's now living in idyllic conditions. There is essentially no more sickness. The Lord is ruling in the world. There is peace. There is prosperity. The world is, is a completely different place. And guess what happens after the, the devil's released after a thousand years? Mankind rebels again. And it shows you the problem is that despite whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, whether it's in a perfect garden, with a perfect relationship with God, with no death, no destruction, what did we do? We failed. We sinned. Whether it was without a government, straight after that, we sinned. Whether it was with a government, we sinned. Whether it was after judgment, after God judges the entire world, and starts again with a with a, a good and righteous family. How long did it take us to fall back into sin? Not long. One generation. When God chooses a particular people and says, I'm going to bless you and, and watch over you and be your God, what do we see the pattern of them? Continually falling over and over and over again. When God sends prophets to his people, what do they do? They kill them. God sends his son into the world. What did we do? We killed him. Now we're in a church age of absolute grace where God offers salvation to every person simply by receiving it. Where God has paid the full price. Where he's gone out of his way to show us his love. Where he's done everything he possibly can to give us eternal life. So God now says, alright, I know you can't do it. I, you don't have the strength within you to do it. Look at your history. You failed every time. You don't have the wherewithal, you don't have the righteousness to be able to, to get into heaven. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it all for you. And I'm going to sacrifice my only son to get you there. So all you have to do is receive it as a gift. And so what does the world do? Rejects it. Then Christ returns sets up a perfect kingdom, sets up righteousness in the world, removes death, destruction, our own stupidity and, and evil, what do we do in the end? After the devil's released one more time, we rebel again. Our, if there's one thing the Bible teaches us, is that mankind fails over and over again. Where we have a sin nature... We can't deal with it. Where we have a choice between selfishness and God, we choose ourselves. So if you're struggling with your sin nature today, join the club. Because it's been this way from the beginning. We don't have the capacity for good. 
God created us in his image and we destroyed it pretty quickly. And we want to be our own gods. The lie that the devil told us is still playing around in our heads today, till today. We can't get it out of our heads. We want to be gods like God. The beautiful thing is, is that for those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their saviour, the Bible says he gives you a new nature. The reason you and I are still struggling with sin, we still have to fight it every day, we still have to keep it subdued, is because the old nature can't be fixed. It's not fixable. You know what God said has to happen with the old nature? It has to die. And the only way we can now be released from that old nature is if we're raptured and it's dead and gone, or we die and it's dead and gone. And then what's left within us is just the new nature. And that new nature, which is God's own nature, by the way, it's God's nature that he planted within us, is the one that lives on forever. It's still you and me. It's still me here, but God's given me his nature. That's the new nature that every born-again believer has. That's the hope we have for the future, because in the future, whether it's during the millennium or after, we won't have to worry about sin. Because God's made that disconnection for us. Does that make sense to everyone? God created a new nature. Now within us, we're living side by side. But one day, the old one's going to be disconnected. And the only thing that's going to be left is the new nature. And that's what I'm looking forward to. More than the actual uh, millennial kingdom, to be honest with you. I'm looking forward to a day when my relationship with the Lord is not going to be a constant battle with my flesh. It's going to be absolutely perfect, and I won't have to try. I won't have to try. I'll just be complete. I could be a perfect peace. But until then, the Bible says, we've been given an immense gift here. We need to treasure it. We need to keep our eyes on that prize. We need to keep our eyes on our Saviour. And we need to understand how critical these days actually are. Because if it's not for you and me, there is no light in this world. So we're being called to be the light because the light now dwells within us. Don't keep it covered up. Don't feed your flesh. Because all it does is waste the precious moments that we have to make a difference in this world. We are the ambassadors that God has called us to be. But are we? Let's not live for ourselves. Let's live for him. And if we don't know him this morning, if you haven't received God's perfect gift, then my invitation to you today will be to accept it, to believe it, to put your faith in the perfect one who will come in glory, who will rule the world and who will judge the world in righteousness. It would be great if you'd be coming back with us, with him. If you don't know the Lord today, then please, don't waste another day. The last thing, or the last place you want to be is finding yourself during a tribulation period where there is no guarantee that you will make that choice then. God bless you. Thank you. Brother Gunn, would you close us off? You may find me. Thank you.